Hi, and welcome to Authorised. My name's Kevin Hillier. This is the podcast where writers speak. And today, some very powerful words from Australia's best-selling non-fiction writer. His name is Peter Fitzsimons, very well known as a columnist, a media personality, and of course, uh, a former rugby international. But of recent years, he's taken to writing books and some uh, terrific books, uh, some of the most historical uh, landmarks in Australian history and the people involved in that he's written about. And this book is all about that. It is called Breaker Morant. It is the story of uh, Harry Breaker Morant and of course, the epic story of the Boer War, which has a very personal uh, connotation for Peter Fitzsimons as you'll find out in this chat that we had. It's a terrific book. It's uh, it's it's harrowing in parts, uh, but it's also uh, enlightening in so many other ways and uh, some terrific information in there and uh, a great story. When you think of Break and Brown, I guess a lot of us immediately think of that Peter Beresford film from the early 1980s with Jack Thompson and Brian Brown. A great film it is and a great story this is, brilliantly told by Peter Fitzsimons and we'll talk to him in just a tick. But a reminder about our terrific partners in this podcast, Authorised, great to have them on board. And uh, it'll be good for you to have them on board as your financial assistance because that's where they help out. Uh, they know all about finance. They know about uh, lending, borrowing. They know about uh, all the things you need to know about finance that uh, may be, at times, for all of us, a little worrying. They'll make it uh, very simple for you. Double nine seven four eight triple three is their Melbourne number. Double nine seven four eight triple three. I'm talking about CS Consulting Group. You can find their website simply by going to cscg.com.au. You'll find out all about the people, all about the services and all about what they have to offer and they are genuinely good people. cscg.com.au, double nine seven four eight triple three. Peter Fitzsimons is ready to go to talk to us about his great new book, Breaker Morant. Congratulations on yet another hefty tome. It is a bit of a hefty tome, isn't it? But, I mean, <laughs> it's interesting. I get – I use researchers – to gather information for everywhere, and I sometimes think, look, I've got to make this book thinner. But I, I think I'm just not going to cut that out. It is so fascinating. It is so strong. It is so fresh. It is so new, if I may say. I, it's just too good to cut out. What was it about uh, Breaker Morant that, that attracted you? What, what, what was, it? was there one thing that you went, hmm, I want to find out more? Well, the, st- the beginning of the story was the whole Boer War. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up in a household where we were very proud, or I was very proud. My parents barely mentioned it, but both mum and dad had served in the Second World War. So dad was, you know, like at the Battle of El Alamein and fought in New Guinea, and mum had been a nurse come physio helping to put the veterans of the Dakota Tract back together in Darwin and Lay and Bougainville. But we also had my grandfather who was at the Boer War, and we were proud of that. We talked to him very occasionally about it. I wish I'd talked more to him. But I was then, a few years ago, I was on the Council of the Australian War Memorial. I was one of the groups that voted, yes, we do need a Boer War Memorial, so we need to put money towards that and back it. And I went to the opening in 2017, and as I come forward, I get out of the car and walk towards the sculpture, which is the Boer War Memorial, about 300 metres down from the actual Australian War Memorial. There, I think it's Sandzak Parade, is that major road between the Parliament House and the War Memorial. I walk towards it, and there are the four bronzed horsemen, the Australian troopers of the Boer War, and there's a plaque in front of it. And I started reading the plaque, which was a letter from an Australian soldier to his mother about what it was like being on the front line, being under fire. And I said, that looks familiar. And then I looked at the name, Frederick Trooper, Frederick Harper Booth, 2nd Victorian Light Horse. That was my grandfather writing to my great-grandmother, Mariah Sophia Clay, McPherson, Nunbird. Uh-huh. I had all the letters 
I had all the letters and diaries that we'd had and treasured in the family for years. So that my, my brother said to me, it's your family duty to write a book on the Boer War and, you know, use Grandpa's letters and diaries. Was, you know, he was a good writer and he was very evocative about what it was like. Make him a minor, very minor character in the book itself, but with, you know, real detail. And then if you're doing the Boer War, the person that everyone recognises from that Boer War is Breaker Morant. And he's a bit like a, he's something of a Ned Kelly figure, yeah. Breaker Morant, in that he's very widely known. And broadly, you know, like wider Australia thinks that Breaker Morant was, you know, a great Australian hero, cruelly put up against the wall and shot by those British bastards. Yes, and yes. It would have, well, that, that's what the, that, that would be the general view. Oh, no, and, it would, absolutely. But that's not the case. For no. a start, he was an Englishman, you know, and he had a very troubled time in Australia. He, I mean, we'll go to the good part first. He was extremely charismatic. Yep. He was a great poet. He wasn't Banjo Patterson, but he did that kind of verse. He was very garrulous. He could he could he could ride better than any man that he ever met. He could fight, but and you know he was loquacious in the corner of the pub and tell stories till midnight. You know, ran many women off their feet, and he was that kind. He was a I think they might have called him at the time a chancer. And so in the early nineties, Banjo Patterson himself, the great Australian poet got a letter from his uncle, said, look, I'm sending a bloke your way by the name of Breaker Moran. Interesting bloke, great writer, always in trouble. I don't know what's wrong with him. About a few weeks later, Breaker Moran turns up at Banjo Patterson's offices, so the two, you know, have a great time, and Banjo Patterson's fascinated with his stories from the bush and all these things that give him, you know, generate ideas for him about poetry, because Banjo Patterson loved you know, bush stories, and this guy had more bush stories than anybody that had ever lived. <laughs> There's some chance that the G-Bung Polo Club, which was the famous, one of the famous Banjo Patterson poems, had a touch of Breaker Morant about it, or at least that's what Breaker Morant claimed. <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the meeting, Banjo had to go somewhere, and uh, Breaker Morant said, oh, well, great, see you. said, look, oh, look, I've just got to go. I've got no money on me. Any chance you could uh, lend me 10 pounds? <laughs> But Banjo Patterson had the good sense to say, actually, no. <laughs> they kept it, they kept in touch. And what then happens is Breaker Morant, all over Australia, was carrying debts. And, you know, he'd been run out of town. He'd been put into prison for stealing. He married Daisy Bates. And that marriage, Daisy Bates, who was a very, well, she wasn't famous at the time, went on to great fame as one of the pioneers of anthropology with the people of the First Nations. Meantime, the Boer War breaks out in a very broad brushstroke. You say, well, what was the Boer War about? The answer was it was white fellas fighting over black fellas' land. Yeah. Is broadly what it was. So you had the Dutch that landed early part of the 1600s on the tip of what we know, well, of the African continent. They established a trading port. The British and the French fought over it a hundred years later. Who, who's going to who's going to take it? Because it's important from the maritime point of view. The English won. The British won, pushing eventually pushing the Boers out, pushing them to the north. The Boers went on what they called the Great Trek, essentially a search for the promised land, land that they could use for agriculture, and they did. They went to the north and eventually established their own republics. And the Brits were content to let them have those those you know that Arab land, if you like until they discovered gold and diamonds, and then, then there became a fight over it. And so there was the First Boer War with 20 years before the turn of the century and before, just before the turn of last century, the Second Boer War took place. And this time, 
the British Empire said, right, we need a very similar to the famous line of poetry from Rudyard Kipling, we don't want to fight this war, but by jingo, if we do, we've got the ships, we've got the men, we've got the money too. And from all over the British Empire, British forces, including those from the Australian colony, started to flood in. And the Australians came to the fore because it was a war fought over the high felt, which needed men on horseback who could live off the land, who could fire guns, you know, while at full gallop, who knew what they were doing. And the Australians were particularly strong on that. And there were some magnificent battles. When I say magnificent, actually, I'll take that back. Most battles where people die, we don't call them magnificent. But there were certainly battles where Australians performed remarkably well in. And yeah. the, the one that I've written about extensively was the Battle of Ellis River, where you had 300 Australians on top of a small hill with some Rhodesians and English surrounded by 3,000 Boers. The Boers pounded the bejesus out of them for four days. And the Australians didn't give up. An emissary was sent forth to say to the English colonel, we've got you surrounded, throw down your weapons, come down with your hands up and we'll let you live. At which point the English colonel said, you don't understand. Even if I wanted to surrender, and I don't, even if I wanted to surrender, if I went back up that hill and told the Australians that I surrender, they would slit my throat. And he was bloody well right. <laughs> when, you go to, when you go to the letters and diaries, they, they, you know, they're talking about that bastard. You know, that if if he if he tries, they were having meetings. If he tries to surrender, we'll fight our way out. We refuse to surrender. I mean, so there was that kind of stuff where the Australians formed the beginning of the reputation we'd see flower at Gallipoli. But if you go forward from there a year to eighteen months, what you have the English notion, the British notion was. You know the European war. If, Kevin, you've got a if you've got one country and I've got another, and my country invades yours, and I take your capital city, yep. I win. Yep. You understand that because yep. I've got your capital city. Yep. And in this case, you know the the British forces. My, my grandfather writes about you know being at the beginning that when the convoy, when the colonnade of of men and horses and supply wagons and cannons and uh, you know, all your artillery forces start to move forward. If you started at the back of the uh, of the colonnade on a horseback and you moved to the front, it'd take you all day to get there. You know, just miles and miles. And and what it was, the Boers were up against the overwhelming force of the British Empire. There was no way they could win it. All they could do was to punish them as much as they could, hurt them, hit them, move back, hurt them, hit them, move back, and. That's what they did until, you know, Bloemfontein fell, then Pretoria, the most important Boer city of the lot fell. And at that point, you know, the, the Brits felt, well, we've got, we've got them. We won this war. But the Boer said, no, we're not playing like that. We're, we're going, we're going to retreat to the badlands. You can, and we're going to fight for the end and you can come and get us. And that's where the Break Moran story comes in of Break Moran joined what was known as the Bushveld Carboneers, which was, Basically, I wouldn't say a collection of misfits, but I would say that most of the Australian soldiers from the Australian colonies, and Australia was by now federated, had gone back. Men like my grandfather had left in late, my grandpa left, I think, late, uh, left in December of 1900. They formed the Bushveld Carboneers early 1901, and Breaker Moran joins it. And they were sort of a gathering of those who didn't necessarily have places to go to back who needed back home who needed needed the money and they were mercenaries and, basically weren't they well mercenaries is a bit you, you, it's it's on that track 
but there were certainly those who needed the money and broadly they were a collection of those who yeah. could do, as described, live off, live off the back of a horse, go out on long bivouacs. And meantime, this whole program was set forth by Kitchener, Lord General Kitchener, which was the problem we've got here. These boars in the Badlands are living, getting food and sustenance and occasionally shelter from boar farmers. All right, well, how are we going to stop that? I know. We'll burn down the boar homestead yeah, and we'll, we'll raise their crops. R-A-Z-E, wipe them out. And there are letters from my grandfather, where well, one particular one that haunts me a bit, where he talks, writes to my great-grandmother and says, you know, we're, tough day today, we've had to burn down these homesteads and the women and the children are crying. But look, Mum, you know, there's nowhere to go on this. This is, this is, it's tough, sounds very tough, but it has to be done. And what they did with them, and this is another Kitchener policy, they established... Concentration camps. What? What? You know, that was the invention of concentration camps. That you put the women and children in a in a on a flat plateau on a flat spot, give them tents and put wire up around them, and not necessarily imprison them, but more. You know, we've got them in the one place at the one time, and we can give them food, keep them alive. So the best view of it, if you look at it with the sun shining just right and the wind blowing from the east, you can say it was a humanitarian exercise. Yeah, right. What happened? <laughs> what happened? However, is they died in their thousands, and then yeah. they died in their tens of thousands because dysentery and disease took over. There was insufficient food. The shelter wasn't up to it. And that was an appalling story. But see, where Breaker Morant then comes in is they've got to go and round up these boars. They've got to find out where the, where the boars who are still fighting are and they've got to capture them. Capture them or kill them, if you like. You know, if they're fighting in battle, but you don't, certainly don't kill them if they give up. And what then happened was, in a particular battle, the man described by, by Breaker Morant as his best friend, Captain Percy Hunt, launches a completely suicidal attack in the middle of the night upon a Boer stronghold and absolute madness. He was totally outnumbered, but he was desperate to make his reputation and he was killed. You know, bravely, he charged forth. And I don't know how where you'd be, Kevin, but i tell you what, I'm not sure if I'd be by his side. I think no. I'd be the one saying, you want me to attack what? Yeah. No. But, but he did attack and he was killed. And Breaker Morant, when he finds out, you know, rides with his patrol hard to get to them. By the time he gets there, the, the bodies are buried, but he's convinced that this man, that his best friend has been mutilated, swears vengeance. They have a fight. They, they, they chase after the receiving boars. They capture one man by the name of Vissa and uh, a boar who was wounded, but they've got him. And Breaker Moran says, right, we're going to court-martial him and we're going to shoot him. And we're going to shoot him dead. The others, the, his soldiers say, his troopers say, you what? What? You know, this is not the way. This man has surrendered. We, we, he's our prisoner. He's a prisoner of war. You don't shoot prisoners of war. And and Morant's approach was, damn little lily livid curse. If you don't do it, I'll do it myself. Yeah. He insists it be done. It is done. That was the first of the atrocities. And then it comes forth that other wars come in. They start to surrender. And Breaker Morant does broadly the same thing. He organises, gives the orders that they be shot. At one point, a boar preacher... Daniel Heese, he becomes aware of what is going on. Morant is fearful that he will report him and gives, him, gives orders for Peter Hancock, Lieutenant Peter Hancock, one of his most faithful officers who would do whatever Morant said to go out and murder him. And so it went. And the untold story of this is, you know, there's a guy I dealt with by the name of Frank Shields. I think Frank's about in his late 70s. He's been working on this story for 50 years. 
he he helped me throughout. He was basically figuratively telling me where the bodies were buried, but you know where I could, where the, my my researchers and I could find the documentation. He vetted everything I wrote. By the end of it, he said, you know, congratulations for turning up so much new stuff. Yeah. And I don't say I've turned up new stuff because I'm a better writer. I say I've turned up a hell of a lot of new new stuff because instead of writing in in, in 1975 and 1985 and 1995, I'm writing in 2018, 2019 when we have the internet. I'm using three or four researchers, two of whom have got PhDs, one of whom's got a military PhD, and of course we're turning up new stuff because we're we're going we're raiding libraries across the world and archives and getting transcripts not available to people before me. But he said you've added one key element beyond the stuff you turned up, you've added one key element that was missing. And I said, what's that? And he said, anger. You're angry at what happened. And yeah. I am angry. I mean, that, that stuff. And what I, the, who I admire are the troopers, the Australian troopers and one Kiwi who said, and this is, this is the untold story, you, these are the guys who said, hang on, we're Australians. We don't do this. We don't shoot unarmed prisoners. You know, we, we, we have standards and decency and honour and 14 of them with this New Zealander, James Christie, wrote a letter and signed it and signed it and sent it to the, the relevant colonel to say, this is happening on your watch. And in the receipt of that letter, the colonel had to act. He did. Breaker Morant, Peter Hancock, George Whitten, Robert Lenahan were put on trial for their lives, court-martialed for their lives. And, you know, you then had many of the famous scenes you've seen in the Breaker Morant movie from Bruce Beresford, and I think it was 1981. And at one point, British military prosecutor says to Breaker Moran, so this, you know, this court-martial, where you court-martialed this, was it a court-martial like this? And, and Breaker Moran says, like this? No, no, like this? You mean chairs and tables and comfort and a nice room? No, it wasn't like this. It was out on the high belt. And you ask, what rule did we shoot them under? We shot them and we shot them under rule 303, yeah. which of course was the kind of rifle they used. And there's a big touch in this. Of, uh, there's like if you think of two famous American movies, one is Apocalypse Now, where you have a an American officer who goes rogue, played by Marlon Brando, and you know he's executing with extreme extreme prejudice. Well, he, the, the guy that goes out to get him, I think Sheen Martin Sheen from memory, is the one that has to go out and kill him. You know, terminate him with extreme prejudice. But that was the story of an officer sent to the Badlands who goes rogue. And and a similar story is uh, a few good men where you've got Jack Nicholson and Colonel Nathan, who plays Colonel Nathan Jessup yeah. in Cuba, Guantanamo Bay, and, and Tom Cruise is the one that's, that prosecutes him. And they get to that famous scene, did you order the code red? You're damn right I did. Yeah. And the, the famous speech where he says, we live in a world that has walls. Those walls have to go to bed. Who's going to do it? You, you, Lieutenant Weinberg. I live with a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago's death and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. And so it goes. And so this theme of Breaker Morant is sending a man to the Badlands with insufficient supervision, overseeing power. And he basically, with his troops, went rogue and committed these dreadful atrocities of shooting unarmed men who had surrendered, had been captured, and presided over a culture where even children were shot. And in the end, the heroes of the piece are those who stood up, those Australian soldiers with, one, with a New Zealander who said, no, we don't do that. 
even even as as recently as I think it was about ten years ago in federal parliament, there was you know there was calls for a, yep. uh, an investigation into to, into pardoning uh, break and rent. Does, does that side of the story uh, still make you shake your head? It shakes my head. I cover that in the in my epilogue, and I yeah. go into it. Like anybody that reads this book, I hope anybody that reads this book will say, "Well, this is ridiculous," because I tell you what. Those 14 men who put their lives on the line to report this, to say we don't do this, I tell you, they're the ones I want to want to. Hang on. You know, for them to know, they put their – the first guy that complained was shot in the back of the head, okay? One of the one of the boar – initially he was a boar, but he was fighting with the Bushveld Carboneers, and they, Breaker Morant, feared that he was going to turn on them. He was shot and killed. So these 14 guys – that put their lives on the line to write that letter and sign that letter. You know, what, they did that and 120 years later you're making a hero out of this man? Well, what, what, what about the sacrifice, the courage they showed? Should we not honour what they did? I mean, it, it is, that whole thing is absurd, absolutely absurd. And there's somebody, a recently passed parliamentarian who I deeply admire, Tim Fisher, former leader of the National Party. He and I united in our common view of the genius of... Uh, courage and foresight of General Sir John Monash, who was magnificent, a great Australian leader. And Tim Fisher, somebody I greatly respect, uh, passed away, I think, two years ago. He was somebody who put his name to the, you know, the pardon Breaker Morant movement. And I'm, I can only think that Tim wasn't across it, you know, of, of, didn't understand everything that had gone on under, under Breaker Morant's watch. And, um, you know, I've, I've gone into this. I mean, I, I'd say that when I did my book on James Cook, Captain James Cook, it would have suited my worldview and my Australian identity if, you know, somehow Cook was a bastard and, you know, he was an indecent, horrible man who whipped people and thought the Indigenous First Nations people were, were savages and all of that. That would have suited me. That's not what I found. I found Cook to be a very capable, very decent man, poor as a church mouse, admirable in the way he'd risen through his leadership, what he'd done with the world. He was the first person to say Australia was invaded. He was the first person to say European contact with with native peoples in the Pacific is not doing them any good, it's damaging them. I, I ended up admiring the man because that's what the record shows. Yeah. But if you similarly with Breaker Moran, it would suit me if he was the man from Snowy River, <laughs> as pure yeah, and as innocent yeah. as the driven snow atop Mount Kosciuszko, cruelly put up against the wall by those British bastards. That is not what the record shows. That is not. That is so far beyond the historical record. That's not the man you're dealing with. Was it? Uh, was it? Di- I mean, you mentioned that you had a team of researchers. Was it difficult uh, sorting the fact from the fiction? Very. And particularly with Breaker Morant, because he was an absolutely inveterate liar, yeah, and spin legends to suit himself. And just just as a small example, the power of the internet. Back, it must have been about ten years ago. I was writing the a bit, a bit over ten years ago. I did a book on Les Darcy, yeah, who was the great Australian boxer, and he had a friend. I think his name was Eric Metcalf, who went away. So they, the issue was, are we going to go to the war? Uh, Les Darcy said, I'm not going. I'm going to have a few more fights to pay for the house for my mother and my brothers and sisters. Then I'll go. Eric Metcalf, his best mate, says, well, I'm going to go. And I was at home having a swim and I came out and I thought, I wonder what ever happened to Eric Metcalf. So all we know is he went away to the war. So I had my phone and I 
texted my researcher in Canberra at the War Memorial, Glenda Lynch. And I said, look, I've got this bloke, Eric Metcalf, his name is, and he, all I can know is he went to the war and he lived in, I remember this, Orlando Avenue, I think it was, Maitland or Singleton, but I think, I think Maitland. Can you just, you know, see if you can find track of it? Two minutes later, she seriously knows what she's doing. There was a bing on my phone to say, here's the PDF. I'd never heard of a PDF at the time, but it was 98 pages of, you know, his war records. And I, I went up to the house, I pressed Control P, print, went up to the house, out. It 98 pages in colour of his entire war records. I get to page six. There's the death certificate. Oh, jeez. When did he die? How did he die? Oh, he died on the 7th of August, 1915. That's, hang on, 7th of August. That's the Battle of the Neck. What? He died in the famous Battle of the Neck shown up by Peter Weir and Gallipoli where they charged at the Turkish guns and died. The point being this, that... Here I am, Johnny Dickhead, having an idle thought of, I wonder what happened to a bloke that died 90 years ago. Two minutes later, I have the records. Five minutes later, I'm bathed in the man's blood, figuratively, yeah. as I'm reading the account of from the, from the sergeant that was with him, how the shrapnel took out his jugular, and I put him, put my hand on to try to stop it, but the blood burst through, and 30 seconds later, you know, he was dead. And there is a thing, and so we break him around, one of the parts of the Breaker Moran story, and it's repeated in every book for the last 120 years, if I may say, until mine, not because I'm better, but because I use serious research and I've got the internet, is one of the, it's been repeated all these times is that Percy Hunt was not only his best mate, but they were going, they'd been back to England and they were marrying sisters. There were two sisters in Devon that they were both engaged to. So when Percy Hunt's killed, that's why uh, Breaker Moran loses his nana and Breaker Morant repeated this and repeated this in all the court martials and yes he was my best mate marrying sisters in Devon and when you you know it's amazing the historical tracks that people leave in documentation but I work with a researcher one of my researchers Barbara Kelly has a son 19 year old son Lachlan who I put onto this because we couldn't find any trace of Captain Percy Hunt having been back there is this more Breaker bullshit this young man Christ knows how he did it, but he get, he digs down and down and down on the internet. And in the relevant months when Percy Hunt was meant to be back in England, he finds the documentation with the signature of Captain Percy Hunt, Pretoria, October 15, Pretoria, December 3, Pretoria, January 15. You know, signed by Percy Hunt there in Pretoria in Cape Town. So there was breaker bullshit. And <laughs> the, the layers, the layers of that stuff, that are so difficult to get, you know, like that have just repeated and they're endlessly repeated because they're in one book after another and one account after another. But I suppose what I do is a big budget operation where what I like, among other things, is having researchers that disagree on various stuff. And right yeah. now, I'm doing a book on the Opera House and I have two of my researchers are in vehement disagreement over whether Yornitson was or wasn't. There was no doubt, they both agree that he came up with a genius vision for what the Opera House should look like. The question is, was he capable of running the operation necessary to build it? The thing is, through that intellectual tension, you get to the truth. You know, like, so I look at it, they look at it, we, we look at it, and then, you know, they're putting evidence ahead. It's almost like an inquiry until you come up with the answer. Yeah. And eventually you have one researcher, you know, backstair and says, oh, I see, I didn't, didn't realise that. You get the answer. And it's, it's an expensive way of doing things, but I reckon I get to, I get, 
if not the truth, I get closer to the truth than has been got before using every tool I've got. Which is why you are Australia's best-selling non-fiction writer and why uh, Trooper Frederick Harper Booth would be very proud of the uh, of the book that you've done on uh, on Breaker Moran and on the Boer War in particular. It's very interesting. What would my grandfather think if if, if he read it? But I've never, I haven't ever actually thought of that. I dedicated the book to him. When he was in 1969, which was 70 years after this all took place, my elder brother and one of my brothers, the elder brothers, I've got three older, well, four older brothers, one deceased, but long before I was born. But my brother Andrew in 1969 was the the, the captain of the cadet corps, the C, well, the CUO, a commanding under officer, I think it was called, of the cadet corps at Knox. And uh, he went to see my grandfather after a cadet parade. He was, you know, an 18-year-old man dressed in full khaki kit. And he knocks on Grandpa's door. Grandpa opens the door. He's in Grandpa, 92 years old. Sees my brother, burst into tears. Yeah. Why are you crying, Grandpa? And it was Grandpa remembering all those soldiers that he fought with that had died, yeah. you know, all those years ago. But what I what I want to do is, you know, shine light on this is what the Boer War was about to honour those who fought and also one of those who had the courage to say when things were going all right, saying, no, this is not what we do. Yeah. No, it's a really important, uh, really important uh, sort of a piece of Australian history. Peter, thank you so much for uh, your time. Uh, congratulations on, on this book. Look forward to the Opera House book. That'll be fascinating. Good, yeah. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. It is a hell of a story and brilliantly told by Peter Fitzsimons. That's why he's Australia's best-selling non-fiction writer. Good book. Check it out. Breaker Morant. It's available now from Hashit Publishing. And my thanks to Peter for his time, as always. Uh, always good to have a chat with a man who, uh, who knows his subject. Boy, does he know his subject. And a great little personal uh, connection in there with, uh, with the Boer War. Uh, for uh, for Peter himself. Thanks also to our terrific partners in this podcast, Authorised, and that is the CS Consulting Group. You can find them on Facebook. Uh, you can also check out their website, cscg.com.au, or give them a call and talk to them about uh, your financial situation and they'll help you out. Double nine seven four eight triple three. that's the number. They're in Melbourne, so it's uh, an 03 prefix, uh, cscg.com.au. Thanks for joining me on uh, Authorised. I hope you uh, enjoyed this edition. There's plenty more to come and we'll bring it to you here on Authorised. Thanks for listening.